So after Joseph's beautiful talk last night about cultivating the wisdom, the perception, the insight into impermanence, does the sound okay? I, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit tonight about actually the nature of insight, of wisdom. What is it? How does it arise? What supports its arising? So, I mean, this is insight meditation. So what do we mean by insight? Insight really being an aspect of wisdom, panya, a mental factor that comes and goes in the mind stream like any other mental factor, not something we can create by willpower. I don't know if you believe that yet, but it's true. So what, what is actually an insight? Is it something that's created new? some new thing or way of being that suddenly comes into being that hasn't been here before, that now we're somehow different and new or the world is different and new, some new way of thinking about things? Does the situation change? No, 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 no to any of that. In a way, remember the quotation um, Joseph read uh, where the Buddha said that the perception of impermanence the perception of anicca basically leads to the, the, that was code for arhat, that stuff, the, the ending of the conceit of self, the perception of impermanence. And really, that's what insight is. It's a shift of perception. We experience it not as a thought. Insight is basically not thought. It's a kind of aha, something in the mind shifts and we perceive a particular situation in a new way, from another angle. Has everything changed or is it just that our view has changed? Really something in the mind lets go and we're able to see in a new way. So when, we, when in speaking of the Eightfold Path beginning with right view, Sometimes I think that's actually quite literal, you know? Right view, accurate perception, accurately seeing ourselves and the world as it is. So it's not of thinking. Just, oh, of course we'll think about it. Thinking will come, but that's after, usually. So the example I always use, because for me it really works well, of what I mean by this what uh, what insight really is is those um, those magic eye graphics. You know what I mean? Where they had they used to have books and books of them, where you look and it's just little graphic designs. There's nothing, no picture that you can tell what it is, and there's a whole you know how it is, right? A whole way of looking at it. When you look, it's just red and green, red and green little designs. If you look in the right way, and the right way happens to be steadily without looking away, but relaxed, right, unfocused, suddenly out pops some other literal design, like a spaceship or dinosaurs or whatever. Now, if you go to that and you haven't seen it before and you say, I know there's dinosaurs, I'm looking for dinosaurs, you won't see it. And some people never really get the knack. But once you've done it once or twice. You see the steady, steady way of looking, 
unfocused, relaxed, boom, out pops the thing. And it doesn't last, does it? It goes back and you see it the other way again. But having had that shift of perception, you know that that's possible. You know that there's both ways of looking at that particular experience. And once you learn how to do it and you practice, then, you know, that's, I don't know why those books would be fun, because after three it's enough already, but, you know, you go through the whole book, oh, this is a dinosaur, this is a spaceship, you know, but you learn how to do it. And the first time is like amazing, wow. By the end of it, it's like, oh yeah, well, that's how it is. You don't have to think about it anymore. It's made a shift in your mind stream, a shift in your understanding. So even though the seeing of the dinosaurs doesn't stay, the knowing that it's that way, the first time it's amazing, but then it starts to have an effect on your mind stream, doesn't it? Until it's just our whole view, our whole understanding that we didn't even know we were clinging to has changed, and we know there's something else in that. And it's no big deal. You don't have to have an argument with someone about it. You can't show anyone else. But if someone came up to you and said, no, that's not true, you don't have to get all upset. You're not defending a view. You just know, oh, well, it is. I'm sorry you can't see it. You know, there's nothing to get upset about. So that really, to me, works very well with insight, whether it's insight into impermanence, into not-self, whether it's insight into, you know, a particular problem, a personality problem, a mathematical problem, not that I know anything about that, but a scientific problem, you know, how something, something lets go that we didn't know we were holding to. It's like this, this is right, and we don't even know, oh, we see it from another angle. That's just a quick aha moment. And as, as, as I was saying, I don't know if I said it, I don't know where I said it, but anyway... Um, the moment just doesn't last but a second. I don't know, maybe it's longer than a yokdo second or whatever it is. <laughs> it's a little more measurable, but it doesn't, it doesn't last very long. But the time is irrelevant. It has an effect on our understanding, on our mind stream. Something has changed, we're never quite so fixed. Yet we can't hold on to that moment of insight, that sense of, ah, oh, it's really different. We, we try. First, there's just a thought, because that's for most of us, maybe not everyone, but for most of us, really thinking is how we kind of, it comes secondary, but it's how we think we're understanding something, you know, or holding on, oh, yeah, I really do see that that emotion wasn't here before, and now it's here and it'll go away. I really do get it that it's all impermanent. But that thought's really not carrying. It's, it's describing, but it's not really carrying the freshness of the insight. If you, you'll notice, the first one or two thoughts is kind of, oh, that's interesting, and then it goes on and on, and it's, okay, cut it. Two thoughts is enough. Just go back to what's happening in this next moment. But we should, no, let me feel that again. It is impermanent. It is impermanent. You know, I'm really seeing impermanence everywhere, you know? And it's long gone. It's just become a concept again. But the moment of insight, and this is what's, what's really interesting, it, it can happen with any kind of experience. It doesn't have to only be in some really deep, subtle state. It's just that shift of perception. It's about the quality of the mind at that moment, not about the quality of the experience. Well, like as an example, 
this is one any of you could have said. Someone told me this at a retreat a few years ago. She was having a very uncomfortable sitting, a lot of restlessness, not dying pain, but restlessness, really uncomfortable, couldn't sit still. So she stood up to just stand and be with standing. Well, she's standing, it was still really restless, uncomfortable, and of course standing, you're one step closer to being able to walk and just walk on out of the hall. So she was standing there thinking, this is really stupid, I should just leave and fix it. You know, that would fix. The problem is this restlessness, this uncomfortableness, fixing it would be to just get the heck out of here. Of course, she was at the back of the hall, and it was a crowded hall and hard to get out. That probably had something to do with why she didn't leave. But anyway, as she sat there, stood there, just kept noticing, she suddenly became aware, and it was very profound for her. How did she say it? Oh, it's just uncomfortable sensation. That's what's happening, and aversion in the mind. But really seeing, oh, uncomfortable sensation and aversion, and that's all it is. It's really not a problem. So in seeing the uncomfortable, instead of the whole story about I have to do something, this can't be born, in seeing aversion, aversion simply becomes another arising mental experience at that point. Oh, no problem. And it was really very profound for her in seeing that the freedom, the ease, the peace, wasn't about getting rid of the situation. I mean, that's what we've been blabbing the whole time. And that's what we each know. But when we have an experience like that for ourselves... It really deepens our that's an insight, that's a moment of wisdom, and it really deepens our faith, our trust. Oh, yeah, that really is true. This really might be a way. And it's very different from someone telling us, from thinking about it. And that can happen in any moment with any experience. It's not about getting a better experience to have a better insight. So that's sort of... Um, where I want to go with this, talking about what is it that supports what different things support, enable this shift of perception, this uh, non-willpowered suddenly letting go of the beliefs, the ideas, the viewpoints we're holding to that we don't even know really we're holding to. It's what, when the Buddha talked about the perception of impermanence, It's not that we're consciously going around saying, I perceive permanence, I want to perceive permanence. We don't even think in those terms. Unconsciously, we're perceiving permanence and not even knowing it. The assumption of permanence, for an example, just since he was talking about that. So, when when insight arises, when wisdom, panya, arises in the mind, It arises because in that moment the quality of mind, of heart, consciousness, these are all kind of the same thing, is in that moment uh, in a state of of openness, of non-clinging. It's interesting when when the Buddha said the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non clinging. Liberation through non clinging could be thought of or seen as the end of our path. And in a way, that's the, I guess, what they say is the experience of the arhat. But it's not only the end of the path. It's the moment-to-moment unfolding of the path. Wisdom, insight, arises only in a mind moment that is free from clinging, that is not contracted and closed around 
the, you know, incredible starring role of me, 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 where there's just like a fraction of a millimeter of all those words he used of space for something other to be perceived. So what supports this opening, this purity, this non-clinging quality of mind? That's really, in some ways, what you could say the practice is about. It's not that the experience needs to change. Suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, this, in this particular experience, in the big picture, doesn't really change. The mind that's holding to something or that's colored by kalesa, by greed, by fear, by aversion, by views, by me, 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 something in it allows it to open. Clinging doesn't arise. Moment by moment by moment, steady awareness, that's what we're practicing here, leads to a kind of a stability. The continuity allows for the kalesha to be seen and not fed, allows for wisdom to arise. But that's not the only way. Those are the other things I want to talk about tonight. We tend to, especially in a meditation retreat, because that's what we're here for, to meditate, Right? We didn't come here to have everything be the same as our daily life, probably. We came here to meditate. We came here to meditate for whatever reasons you say to yourself, and you probably all have different language for it. But one is to purify the mind, to free our heart and mind from suffering. But because we're here in a meditation retreat, that's what we talk about, that's what you talk about, that's what we're focused on, moment-to-moment mindfulness. And I'm not trying to change that focus. It's a good focus. It's a useful focus. The moment-to-moment mindfulness really is the most direct way to allow for wisdom to arise. But that's the thing. Wisdom arises just by our moment-to-moment awareness and interest, not through our willpower, and not through getting the right content, the right experience, the right meditation, the correct, you know, way of walking or sitting or breathing, the correct free-flowing attention, the correct choiceless awareness. We get so focused at times on doing the meditation, just doing it, doing it correctly, that I don't know if you've noticed how we can be really, really sincere and working very um, carefully, trying not to strive, and really doing everything as best we can. But at times, it it can start to feel really, at times, very self-obsessed. It all becomes about my meditation, right? I mean, I spent a long time in that state. I I mean, it comes and goes like anything. But there's times when we're really trying but we're, the, the focus all becomes on how's my meditation doing and getting my meditation better and this noise is disturbing my meditation. Or I just, I just, I could feel it walking through the lunchroom today. Okay, maybe I'm projecting. But <laughs> I've been there myself, so you can only project what you know. But that sense of you know, walking around the lunchroom so carefully because I'm protecting the cocoon of my meditation. You know, whatever the heck's going on in my meditation. But there's not, at times, and we all go in and out, there's, there's times when there's nothing to protect because there's no meditation. There's just this moment of awareness. Whatever's happening doesn't matter. And in that, 
there's that openness. There's that possibility for insight to arise. Now, as soon as I've said this, the mind goes, okay, openness, the possibility. (laughs) You know, it's just what our minds do. But because insight arises spontaneously, in a moment of really a purity of mind, of consciousness, it's not clinging, it's not self-referencing or obsessed, we can't create that. You just can't. And if we, I don't know why we can't believe that. It would spare us so much suffering. But we can't create it. We can't make insight happen out of, out of um, willpower. We can't make wisdom arise. So it's a tricky thing because we can call on, incline our mind towards the wisdom of what we've already understood or known. So taking impermanence again. There's ways we've all experienced impermanence. We can incline our mind in that way in, in terms of remembering, reminding ourselves, oh, yeah, right, stuff is impermanent. But you can't sit down and say, I will now have an insight into impermanence. You can't. I mean, you can sit down and do that, but you can't say, I'm going to now notice the beginning and ending of every arising experience. Have you tried that today? <laughs> I bet a lot of you have, right? <laughs> I know, I just... Knew when I heard him say that, I knew that's what the mind's going to do. And sometimes we can, and sometimes we can't, because guess what? It's not in our control. But so having the, the, the inclining the mind to the wisdom of, yes, impermanence is a truth, and I have experienced that, that's useful. But then we can't make the wisdom arise again. It's like the letting go, the spontaneous, and staying really present. So usually that's what we talk about as the, the supports for wisdom, for insight, the steadiness of mindfulness, this bare attention, non-judging without concepts, the non-striving, the continuity, and the stability, the steadiness that grows from the, st- the mindfulness that becomes samadhi. But that's not all we have to call on. That's not like it's that or nothing, you know, that when your mindfulness isn't steady and when you're feeling like, I was saying, you know, you're just so obsessed with the meditation that it's just becoming one dismal, dark, new way to suffer, you know? (laughs) Am I making that up or have you experienced that? So, oh my God, life was bad enough and now on top of it I have to be the bad meditator. (laughs) Uh, I was talking, uh, a good friend of mine was um, sitting for a few weeks over at, at the Forest Refuge last month when I was there, and, and he was just talking to me about how, talking about how we talk about the attitude of mind and just checking the attitude of mind, which is really what I'm talking about tonight. But he's saying, so really sincerely, this is someone who's been sitting forever and who knows better, but really sincerely says, so the attitude of mind, I mean, is there ever an attitude that isn't Kalesa? Is there ever a moment, an attitude of mind when you check it that isn't greed, hatred, or delusion? Because that's all I ever see. Which, of course, isn't true. It wasn't even true for him. But it's like as if we get sometimes people get, and usually when things aren't going the way you like them to or they're unpleasant, so kind of uh, focused, zoomed into 
the Kalatia aspect, the defilement, the torments of mind aspect. Yeah, they're the source of the suffering. I mean, it's good to notice them. I'm not saying that. And we've been talking about that a lot and understanding them as freeing. I just have to say that's all still true. But there's times we get so fixated that um, even noticing, like just before I said that woman noticed the aversion, she noticed it with a mind that was not holding. So the aversion becomes the object. The mind that's noticing it is clear, pure, non-clinging. Aversion's not a problem. But there's other times, once in a while, the mind that notices greed, aversion, self-judgment, fear, isn't quite totally pure and non-clinging. It's really, really colored, identified with that particular collation. It's just seeing through it. And the more we really try to be moment-to-moment mindfulness, the more we really try to let go, it just seems like we're digging ourselves, it feels like, at that moment, into a deeper and deeper hole. And you can't figure it out, because technically you're doing everything you should be doing. You're doing the practice right. You know, you're not just sloughing off. But everything's just kind of spiraling, spiraling. Out of control is okay. Unpleasant's okay. But there's times when... It's really, the more you seem to be mindful, the more it seems like you're feeding the unwholesome. Have you ever had experience of that? It's usually the time when you come into an interview and you say, okay, you need to shift the focus of attention. And the person usually feels, I've failed. I have to switch the focus of attention because I wasn't good enough to get through this, you know? How much the, the mind at that point is colored by, that moment of mind is colored by, self-judgment or wanting or or attachment to a view, and we can't see it. And far from being kind of bright and open and non-clinging with the possibility for insight or wisdom, it's just kind of contracting on itself. So at this point, it's really where we can learn that there's other ways to brighten, to kind of bring the mind into readiness for insight, we could say. I want to read this part of this sutta. I really like it. It just kind of made me see that this is how the Buddha worked. So it's a, it says, When the Buddha, the Blessed One, was staying in Rajagaha, the squirrel sanctuary, now at that time in Rajagaha there was a leper named Supa Buddha, a poor, miserable wretch of a person. And at that time... The Blessed One was sitting, surrounded by a large assembly, teaching the Dhamma. And Supabuddha saw the large gathering of people from far off, and he thought, without a doubt, someone there must be distributing food. So why don't I go over to that large group of people and get some food? So he went over to the group of people, and then he saw the Blessed One sitting there, teaching the Dhamma, and he realized, oh, there's no one distributing food in this large gathering. That's Gotama, the contemplative, sitting surrounded by a large assembly, teaching the Dhamma. Why don't I listen to the Dhamma, since I'm here? (laughs) So he sat down. Now the Blessed One, comprehending the minds of the entire assembly with his awareness, this is one of the special powers of a Buddha, there's often suttas where he does it, he asks himself, now who here is capable of really understanding the Dhamma? Who here is really capable of waking up? Don't you wish we could do that and say the right thing? (laughs) Sorry, sorry. 
We have to do it ourselves. And he saw Supabuddha, the leper, sitting in the assembly, and on seeing him, the thought occurred to him. And it's always like that. It's never he thought. It's the thought occurred to him. The thought occurred. It just came through. This person here is capable of understanding the Dhamma. So aiming specifically at Supabuddha, the Buddha gave a step-by-step talk. That is, a talk on generosity, on giving, a talk on virtue, on non-harming conduct, a talk on the heavens. He talked about the drawbacks, the suffering and the corruption of sense desire, of sense passions, and the rewards, the happiness of renunciation. Then, when he saw that Supabuddha the leper's mind was ready, malleable, free from hindrances, elated and bright, then he gave a Dhamma talk peculiar to the awakened ones, that is, the Four Noble Truths. So then, he very carefully talked on all these other qualities of our life, of our practice, that brighten the mind, that free the heart, that open us out from our self-absorbed tendencies. And then when he could tell the mind was ready, boop, boop, and of course... (laughs) Of course, even that wretched, miserable wretch of a person on hearing this, but just as a clean cloth, and this is how the mind is when it's not colored with kalesa, just as a clean cloth, free of stains, would properly absorb a dye, in the same way as Supabuddha was sitting in that very seat, the dustless, stainless Dhamma eye arose within him. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. That's one of the kind of little lines that show he was a, a stream enter. So I, I, I really love that. That sense of it's not always the most helpful or appropriate thing to, to just hone in with all your energy on getting more precise, on being more mindful, on seeing more clearly, that that's going to make insight happen. <laughs> It just doesn't always work. That's, yes, it's great, and it's, it's our first line of refuge, no question. But sometimes we can call on lots of other qualities that open us out, that open the mind and heart into the spaciousness, the openness of non-clinging. Uh, Saida Utejaniya, he was talking when I said something that I thought was really interesting he was saying how, you know, we tend to really try to see the object of our awareness more clearly a lot of the time. We think, oh, it's a cloud. I've got to see it clearly, see it clearly. We get so focused on the object, and the object can be mental too, remember. But we forget that really the path is about purifying the mind. And so he said, this is what I thought was really interesting, that we can't force the insight. He said, the, the quality of mind, of consciousness, that the state of mind is matched with the object that it can observe. Actually, he said the mind will perceive the object that it deserves. <laughs> that was his language. So basically saying that if the state of mind is filled with, uh, identified with, with wanting, with dislike or aversion, with clinging to views, with it's all about me, 
that quality of mind can try as hard as it wants, it's not going to see Nibbana. It's only going to see through Kalesha in a moment, right? And so as long as we're looking through, and he says in Kalesha mind, that's what he calls it, Kalesha mind. So let's take a mind that's colored and we don't recognize the wanting, the striving, the dislike, the self-judging, the views. We don't recognize that. He said that all a mind like that can recognize is concepts. It sees everything. It sees the concept and takes the concept for reality. It's interesting. So like that woman I talked about standing in pain, she would see through the mind with aversion that this unpleasant restlessness is my problem and I need to get rid of it to fix it. And that's just how it is. The Vipassana mind, he calls it, can observe things just as they are. Vipassana mind meaning connected, awake, free from clinging. Without bringing in concept, can recognize things just as they are. It can see concept, can see that concept. Oh, I thought this is the only way to get rid of this pain by walking out, but now I see this is unpleasant experience, feels like this. This is aversion in the mind, it's like that. Nothing changed but how it's observed. Kalesha mind, Vipassana mind. So that's when we talk about turn around and just notice what's the attitude of mind. It is not always Kalesha mind. A great deal of the time it's not. Really, really helpful for us to also recognize that. Really helpful. Recognize when there is wisdom. It's clear seeing. Just seeing things as they are without adding anything extra. Recognize when there's metta, when there's compassion, when there's sympathetic joy or equanimity. Recognize when there's gratitude, when there's generosity, when there's non-harming moral conduct, which can be of thought, not just of speech and body. And all of these are also practices that we can call on consciously to brighten, to make our mind more malleable, more elated, more flexible, more open. When we feel that we're practicing as hard as we can and sincerely as we can and we're just getting tighter and tighter and it's more and more and more about me, then maybe for a moment we could call on some of these other ways of brightening the mind, opening the mind, the heart. So I just want to mention a few of them. I mean, each of them is a talk in itself, right? So I just want to talk about a few of them. But recognizing, again, that the insight, wisdom, can arise in relationship to any experience. And the most kind of mundane experience can be the source of really profound insight, so when we're getting upset that, you know, our experience isn't subtle enough and I'm just sitting in, you know, fear and then I get up and go eat and it feels like my normal everyday consciousness and I want something special, you know, we're looking out to object, to experience, turn around and look at the attitude of mind. It's in the little things sometimes that something lets go, like that woman standing there. And, oh, wow, really a whole other way of being, of freedom is perceived possible. Lots of times there's someone else that was at the forest refuge, and she was having lots of insights, and it seemed like most of them she would talk about came when she was doing her her vacuuming, yogi, work meditation. 
I love that because it really shows, you know, we're, we're, we're just meeting everything as our path of waking up. We're not just focusing on some particular um, activity. You know, sometimes people, you don't even know you're striving. You're really very committedly being continuous, not tense, and there could just be such a tiny, tiny little bit of wanting or pushing that we really can't even notice it until it drops. And sometimes I know for me it would drop like when you go into the toilet. You know, just something you just quit trying to be so mindful and insight can come, you know. Or you're drinking your tea or she's doing her vacuuming or whatever. So never give up, but don't try too hard. Nyosho Kempo, who was a very um, wonderful Dzogchen master, he's talking about bodhicitta, the awakened noble mind and heart. But this is broader than that. I'm going to read. The difference between the impure and the pure mind, the deluded mind, and the enlightened mind, is mainly a difference of narrowness and openness. In our deluded state, our mind is extremely narrow. We, example, we live alone, we rarely consider the infinity of sentient beings. The more constricted and narrow the mind, the more it thinks only of itself, disregarding the well-being, happiness, and suffering of others. Conversely, the enlightened Buddha is one who considers the infinity of beings rather than being concerned only with his own ego and individuality. Thus, the entire path from an ordinary being to Buddhahood is the gradual opening of mind. And that is precisely what we call bodhicitta, literally to grow and develop that enlightened attitude. The concept of growth is used here for the passing from a completely narrow attitude focused principally on oneself to an open, loving heart whose scope instinctively encompasses the infinity of sentient beings. So all these step-by-step ways that the Buddha mentioned in that Sutta to Super Buddha and a couple I'm going to mention they're all moving in that direction from the narrow, constricted heart and mind centering around me, driven by greed and fear, to open, the open heart and mind, the mind of non-clinging, basically, non-clinging, open, which will instinctively consider other beings' needs. But it's not that we have to be thinking that. It's just that when we're not centered here, the energy is available to respond to whatever presents itself to us, to respond to other beings. There's not this sense of me and other. It's just this. And so in support of insight, supports for wisdom, are all these different ways that the Buddha mentions that all work towards this uh, brightening, lightening, opening the heart and mind. And mostly... They're um, 
happy, joyful qualities. But it's not about cultivating them because we want to feel good. You know, that's both the old motivation of how we used to do everything, and then sometimes we get so so cautious, so fearful that we might fall back into wanting to feel good that we get focused on the negative, like my friend. And when we're feeling really the happiness of a generous thought that comes up and you feel really happy, the mind goes, you're just clinging to the pleasant, you know, back to, you know. And so instead of the openness that we could really appreciate, it's like, no, I have to do it right. But we don't recognize that, you know. So really we can cultivate the wholesome. It's one of the four right efforts, recognizing wholesome states of mind that have arisen and helping them increase and cultivating unarisen wholesome states of mind. That's a piece of wisdom. That's not, oh, I don't like what's happening and I want to feel good. That's not a wholesome state of mind, right? So I want to just mention briefly bodhicitta then, even though that wasn't in the sutta. Just briefly, bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta being a noble or awakened heart-mind, the Tibetans always talk about it, as a motivation that we can consciously cultivate, if we choose, to feed our whole life, our whole practice. Really, very simply, you could say, is cultivating an altruistic attitude, cultivating an attitude, just as Nyosho Kempo said, of not only just about me, but caring for the infinity of all beings. Okay, we can't go that far yet. But just that sense of, may my practice be not for myself alone, but may my awakening be so that I can then be of service to help awaken all beings, something like that. Of course, we don't start out feeling that, you know. At first, it might seem really very far away. But we can cultivate it. In fact, uh, Sogni Rinpoche talks about, well, talks about it a lot. In one of his books, he says, you know, it's really okay to practice bodhicitta. Because in the beginning, he says this enlightened attitude has two aspects. This is relative bodhicitta, cultivating this sincere wish, and it's not sincere at first, maybe. That's what he means we cultivate it, that may I really awaken in order to help all beings awaken. So he says the enlightened attitude has two aspects. One is the urge in ourselves to purify our negativity, to come out of our suffering. And the second is uh, the sincere desire to benefit all beings through our awakening, to awaken in order to bring others to awakening. So these two aspects. It's really compassion for self and others, and always to remember with this and also with all the Brahma-viharas, that when we're um, connecting with all beings, with metta, with this bodhicitta, with compassion, that you're one of the all beings. Sometimes people do all beings and forget this one here. So compassion to all beings includes oneself. So in talking about you know, cultivating this, at first it may seem, well, that's too highfalutin. You know, I'm just sitting here. It's all I can do to get through the sitting. And when I say, may I awaken to serve all beings, it just sounds completely phony. So, you know, so you're saying it's okay if it's artificial at first. It's not what we're used to. We haven't been thinking this way before, so we need to deliberately bring it up. We need to deliberately shift our heart and mind that way. 
So just try it. If you're inclined, just say it to yourself, beginning of a sitting, the end of a sitting, the beginning of the day, and see what happens. Just see what happens. Something again he said that if, if you cultivate the correct motivation in your own heart, just do that. It'll turn into bodhicitta all by itself. And I have found actually in my practice that's true. You may for many years were practicing for whatever your own particular motivation is, to free myself from suffering, to free yourself from a particular pattern that's just too much suffering, to experience more love, to be compassionate, to awaken, whatever, you know. And pretty normal that even when it's wholesome, it's pretty much about me in the beginning. I mean, that's all we know. But as it slowly, slowly, those motivations begin to open up as the wisdom, as the sense of, of self being so solid begins to be seen through. As impermanence, there's more and more moments of insight, of seeing through that. The, the blind, the unconscious holding to all the views till it's all about me and I have to do this to make myself happy, they just naturally start to get more transparent. You don't have to try so hard to root it out. That's too much me doing. It just gets more transparent. It does start to turn into bodhicitta by itself. I have a friend. Um, I haven't seen him for a few years. But he's one of... He's, I think I could safely say he's one of the more aversive people I know. And I know a lot of aversive people. Uh, <laughs> aversive, sincerely practicing, but very aversive. And he's... And, and, with that, really most of it turned towards himself, very, very self-judgmental and feeling like he could never really practice or do anything good, really down on himself. And he was talking to me after, after a three-month course where he'd been just saying this bodhicitta to himself, and it, may I awaken for, to be of service to awaken all beings, and you know, then just wham, wham, who are you? How can you even say that? How can you even just, you know, so much self-hatred would come up and cynicism and you don't feel anything and then it just shows you're just, you know, all the stuff you can think of it yourself. And, <laughs> but he said he just kept on doing it. And something really started to change. And I've had the same experience, not quite to the negative intensity of his, but where it, stop, it stops being just words and you start to really feel. Not, oh, I'm so great, awakening for all beings, or that I'm awakened or anything. But the motivation starts to shift where, and, and this is uh, the way Sokni describes the effect of that, which is really uh, quite, he's funny, it's also quite lovely. It gives us courage. It opens the mind and heart. When it stops being all about me, but really somehow I'm doing this for all beings, then there's times when you feel like, I've had enough, I'm out of here, the hindrances are too strong, and something comes in, well, it's not just for you, you know. And it's not like an ego thing, I'm going to serve all beings. It's like, okay, just one more step, one more breath. It expands the possibilities. It expands our mind and heart. Like the way Sokni puts it is that it, uh, <laughs> it's the antidote to our chicken heart. <laughs> it expands our chicken heart and gives us courage you know, to be here for the next moment, for the next moment, for the next moment. And it may sound like it's strengthening the sense of ego and self, but it's actually not. It's just the reverse. It's really quite lovely and very uh, supportive. 
just to keep going. We don't have to know where it's going. or You don't get into thinking, well, how is this going to help anybody? No, that's just thinking. But it's this really deep motivation. May, may what I say and do awaken me to awaken all beings. Just try it. Play with it. And see what the effect it has. Sometimes we can't get it, of course. All of these things I'm mentioning are skillful means sometimes we can access, sometimes not. Sometimes we need to, sometimes not. So just seeing which ones are helpful. So I'm going to just mention the others very briefly, and we'll talk about them more as the retreat goes on. Okay, all four Brahma-viharas. Loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. Compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity we'll go through in the evenings here. And loving-kindness was done in the first six weeks, and most of you are familiar with it. These are also... In turn, even though the phrases we use are about me wishing for you, and it seems very me and other oriented, in the moment, on a mind moment, when there's any of the four Brahma Viharas, it actually partakes of the vastness of the impersonal nature of the open heart and mind. When there's any Brahma, any of those four, there's not clinging in the heart and mind. It is not all about me. The distinctions, the separations break down. And so, again, in any of these four, it uh, really opens, brightens, makes the mind and heart softer, more flexible. At the same time, it's softer. It's also not so brittle, more flexible, not so easily shaken. You know, when you're really feeling metta, really, and you walk through the dining room, you don't so much feel like you have to protect anything, do you? It's not like they're all out there waiting to ruin my meditation. It's just, here we are. You know, it's a very different feeling. Dana or generosity. The first thing that the Buddha spoke about to Super Buddha, and really is pretty much the first thing he seemed to always teach when he started teaching, especially to lay people. And so we've talked about generosity, and we'll talk about it again. The one point I really want to make about it tonight is something I didn't really understand until I'd spent a lot of time practicing in Thailand and also in Burma, is that we hear about generosity as a way of creating merit, wholesome karma, wholesome results of doing good for people, of caring. But the big secret about it is it's actually a source of incredible happiness in our own mind and heart when we're expressing generosity through thought or speech or action. That the act of generosity, the intention really of generosity in the mind is a source of a real brightness. It really brings a kind of happiness, a kind of elation to the mind that I hadn't really gotten before I'd seen it in action and experienced the effects going both ways. You know, I was a nun in Thailand for about a year, many years ago. And uh, at first I was really uncomfortable, and the same going to Burma, really uncomfortable with how generous people were to me in little things. I'm not saying everyone's perfect, beautiful, everything's wonderful, but there's a quality of generosity in the Dhamma culture, and often in many places in Burma, especially just the regular culture, 
um, of just spontaneously offering time, gifts. I was offered a lot of support in when I was a nun in Thailand, my robes, my food everywhere. People would give me the best, the best kuti or whatever they could have there for women to stay in. I was just treated so kindly with such care. And the first response was, you know, no, not me, I'm not worth it, or I really don't need it, I have enough money myself, I don't need to take from you. And you see that just cuts it. So there's this open generosity and wanting to push it back, you know, and it's, it's, it's not that way. What one really sees is the, in the people offering, there's so much happiness. They're really happy to offer. And when I would open and receive, that happiness would affect me. And then it just kind of is like a circle. I notice at times when I was in... I mean, other things go on too. This isn't the only thing. But over times I would spend in different monasteries in Burma or in Thailand in, in communication with people, I would find certain aspects of my heart getting brighter and brighter and happier. And I mean, there's a lot of suffering, but a kind of a, a brightness, a lightness that could open to the suffering. I just felt really inspired and uplifted. And some of this was from the generosity. A friend of mine, um, she put it in a good way, she had come to a retreat in Burma a couple of years ago, and she hadn't been there much at all. And she came, and she was telling me later that she didn't quite notice it at the beginning. It kind of crept up on her. But she was an acupuncturist, and she came up to um, a retreat in Chazwa just to sit. Not to sit. It was an Abhidhamma study retreat. And then she, I took her across the street to the hospital to meet some Burmese practicing acupuncturists. And she wasn't training them. She just met them. They were so kind to her and friendly and took her into Mandalay and took her to meet some really famous acupuncturist from China. And then they took her to meet this wonderful old teacher, Sayadaw. And then they took her to dinner. And, and, just, and then she met this Chinese teacher that she'd actually studied with in China who happened to be in Man. It just kept all this kind of magical, happy stuff kept happening. You know? <laughs> it's like that sometimes. Sometimes it's the other way. But... And then the, the, the um, guest houses where she stayed, people went so out of the way to take care of her, to be kind. And she said she started to know she was just getting happier and happier and feeling more and more open and wanting to offer and wanting to give and wanting to share. And, it's, and, and, and not out of a sense of I should. It starts that way because we're not used to it. But really a kind of happiness that opens the heart, the non-clinging, is just the natural response. And then it, you know, the heart is open, it's brighter, you start to see more, you start to experience more, you start to have some insights. But for her, it's just this happiness. She came home and she saw how that her receiving the generosity and the happiness of that person made her happy. She saw when she came home that her friends, who didn't really know anything about what she'd been doing or her meditation, they really noticed it in her. And, and being around her, they would start to feel happier, you know, and more open and more generous. And it, it can kind of roll. And then it, she said also here that it started to kind of go away again. It didn't feel as supportive. But that's just, I mean, there's a lot more to say about generosity, but I just wanted to bring out that, how it functions as a way of brightening and opening the heart and mind. And so... 
even just a generous thought. And here, please, please don't go around like doing and saying things to, to other people here, you know. I'm going to write everybody a note to be generous or whatever. But just sometimes a generous thought will come up in your mind. What we can do is notice it. Notice that's an attitude of mind too. Notice it. Appreciate it. Sometimes when we're really down or kind of tight, you can actually reflect on, contemplate your past generosity. Not as an ego thing, aren't I something great? But just bring up, feel moments when you've thought or said or done something that's really from that open-hearted generosity. And you experience, again, the brightness, the uplifting of that kind of like karmic result, vipaka. And it's really quite helpful. Similarly with sila, with non-harming behavior, moral conduct. Certainly it's in order to protect other people and to protect ourselves. As the Buddha talked about the brightness of it as the bliss of blamelessness, freedom from remorse. This is a really happy state. This is a state that really allows us to relax, to open the heart and mind. I imagine that most of you, in the time you've been here, have had some unwholesome thing, some stupid thing you did in the past may have arisen in your consciousness, right? We all have at least done one or two stupid, unintelligent, harmful things. And it's painful. It's painful, you know, when they come up. Even if it's met with wisdom, met with openness, so it's remorse, that remorse is painful. But it's healing if we don't pile on top of it guilt and present moment aversion. But the freedom from remorse, the bliss of blamelessness, is a very profound aspect of non-clinging, of opening the heart and mind, of strengthening the mind, of support for wisdom, for insight. I have to read this. A little aside, but I have to. It's from a a news magazine under a little column called Only in America. A California perfume company has introduced the world's first biblically-themed fragrance called Virtue. From the perfumer, it's based on years of scriptural research. It includes frankincense, myrrh, in a blend of 3,000-year-old scents. Retailing at $80 for a bottle, virtue will enable its wearer to smell like Christ and many of the saints, (laughs) says CEO Rick Larimore. I won't tell you what I think they must have smelled like, schlepping around in the desert all the time. (laughs) Probably that's not what the perfume smells like. Anyway, this is the main point. This is the CEO again. Many individuals, this is the CEO of the perfume company, many individuals of high spiritual attainment, he says, give off a fragrance attributed to their virtue. So, if you think that person near you is wearing a scented product, maybe... You just don't recognize. (laughs) 
Okay, though, on a serious note, the Buddha, and I'm not going to read this whole sutta, but it's one, it's one of these steps. This leads to that, leads to that. And in this one, he says, it says, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is it, their reward? It says, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. And what's the purpose of freedom from remorse? It goes on and on. So that freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. And it goes from joy to rapture, rapture to serenity, serenity to sukha, sukha to concentration, concentration to knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, to disenchantment as its purpose and its reward. Disenchantment has dispassion as its purpose. And what's the purpose of dispassion? What's its reward? Dispassion has knowledge and vision of release as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of release as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of our hardship. Just to draw the links very clearly. But there's times when we're nowhere able to you know, be dispassionate to see things clearly. But we can be calling on our sila, our skillful virtues. And no matter what we've done in the past, skillful virtues, sila, moral conduct can start right now. Even Angulimala, you know the story, I'm not going to go into it, but the mass murderer who'd killed 999 people when he met the Buddha, and the Buddha really helped him see through it, and he became a bhikkhu. Even then, he began, right then, the cultivation of skillful virtue. And there's an interesting little um, story in the sutta about him, where after he became a monk, and he was very sincere, he was somewhat, he'd reached first stage anyway, he went into a village for alms and saw a woman giving birth and in a lot of pain and suffering. And he was really touched and came back to the Buddha and said, ah, oh, so much suffering. I wish I could help. So the Buddha says, this was a common blessing then. He says, go and say to her sister, since I was born, I do not recall intentionally killing a living being. Through this truth, may there be well-being for you and your child. He goes, Buddha... Wouldn't that be a lie? I mean, I've intentionally killed many living beings. Buddha goes, okay. So then go and say, Sister, since I was born in the noble birth, since I was born in the Dhamma, I do not recall intentionally killing a living being. Through this truth, may there be well-being for you and the child. And it says, and there was. So just taking your stand on that profound truth. Skillful virtues begin now non-harming speech, non-harming thoughts, non-harming action. And in calling on them, we can actually contemplate, reflect on, call up times of skillful virtue as a way to brighten, to open the contracted heart and mind, to support the faith and the trust. Again, this is something many times we don't do so much in the West, but it really is a source of a, a wholesome happiness sometimes. You might have to get over a little feeling of, ugh, this is so egocentric. That's a version. 
But when you're just purely calling up wholesome things you've done, when those memories come, don't shy away or be afraid to look. Feel the wholesomeness. Feel the brightness. And in the one minute left, the last thing I want to mention is gratitude. One time Pandita was giving a talk here, and I didn't have the notes, so I can't remember all of it, but he talked about five kinds of rare beings, rare people. One of them was a Buddha, so that's pretty rare. But one was someone who really feels and expresses gratitude. And so in terms of just opening oneself to gratitude, and this is something I actually often practice on and off retreat, when my mind and heart feels contracted and narrow and just focused on my little self or on what's wrong or overwhelmed with suffering, mine or another's, to consciously call on gratitude. Whether it's gratitude to the Buddha, to your teachers, to our circumstances, gratitude for human birth, or it can just be gratitude for little things. It still brings this, this openness, this inspiration of mind, this purity of mind stream. So sometimes on a retreat, I remember, I'd be just getting in bed at night, one of those nights when you think, thank God, you know, tomorrow is a new day. And hopefully, you know, things change and we'll wake up and it'll all be okay again. This state will be gone. And I would just start saying, just bring in some gratitude. I'm grateful for, and I might start really mundane. And again, like with a bodhicitta, it, it's not feeling anything. I'm grateful to have a bed to sleep in. I'm grateful to have enough warmth. I'm grateful I had enough to eat today. I'm grateful for the Dharma. And just start, and sometimes I'd have to think of things. And really pretty soon, unless it's a really contracted state, but really pretty soon, some little little glimmer of actual gratitude would come, and then stuff would just, just start pouring, you know, more than I could even think. Things that surprise me. And it's not so much about the content. It's just about touching again that attitude, that wholesome attitude of heart and mind really supporting this attitude. You know, it's not so much about feeling good. It really isn't. Feeling good comes along with these things as kind of a nice, you know, side benefit. But it's really about calling on these different ways to enlighten, to uh, support the purity of the consciousness, the, to help support the mind of non-clinging. Here and now, as the means to the end of awakening, but it's only in this moment, experienced fully at times in this moment, here and now. Something we can all be really grateful for. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. I just wanted to share this bodhicitta prayer from the 12th um, Gyalwang Drukchen Rinpoche. I just really like it. It's like a prayer. I call on you, my teachers. Regard me with compassion. I sincerely wish to receive your blessings. Please regard your child's longing desire. Please bless me with the resolve to attain realization. Please bless me to have a steady and smooth mind so that for this life and those to follow, as a true practitioner, 
whose heart and mind are in accord. The special intention to help others is spontaneously present. May I be able to benefit measureless beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.